The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together as we look at God's Word this morning. If you're watching online, we're glad you're joining us, and we do invite you to join us again in person as you're able, and especially if you're in the Twin Cities. Before I begin this morning... I have an announcement that I want to make that I've been tasked to give from the elders. And so as many of us know, over the last several years, the elders have felt a desire to increasingly shepherd the flock of God that is among us at these three campuses. And so we took steps to strengthen that aspect of our ministry in 2020. We had a 2020 vision that included moving from kind of video preaching to campus specific preaching. And part of that 2020 vision was we tasked a subcommittee of the elders, our organizational elders, to look at the future structure of Bethlehem. And at our last all-elder meeting, that subcommittee brought a report on the structure, and I'm going to read the result of that in a brief statement right now. It says this, during the 2020 vision, Council of Elders commissioned the organizational elders to examine the possible long-term structure of Bethlehem Baptist Church. As a result of that work, and as a continuation of our 2020 vision, the elders of Bethlehem Baptist Church now believe that God is leading us to become three distinct churches. So let me say a few things about that real quickly. Our burden as elders is to bring you in at this early stage. We want you to join us in prayer for these things. The congregation will need to vote on these things at some point in the future, but we're just, at at this point, we don't have all the details figured out. We're just inviting you in to pray with us, to be patient as we continue to work towards some details and answering some of the various questions and perhaps taking some incremental steps toward this vision, which we've done already. Second, we're planning on sharing more on November 21st at our 150th anniversary celebration, as well as at future North Campus family meetings. And so in the meantime, feel free to reach out to any of your North elders. There's much we don't have answers for yet, but we're eager to dialogue and trust that God will continue to lead us through your prayers and your participation in this process. And then the third thing, As we go along, we will continue to bring updates, and we invite your feedback and prayer as next steps become clear. So this is a significant moment, and it's an all-hands-on-deck moment in many ways, that all of us would commit this to prayer in the coming days and weeks and months and perhaps years as we trust the chief shepherd leading us. We know that he will never leave us or forsake us. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now asking that you would do what only you can do. Show us the beauty of Christ as our chief shepherd, as the one who rules and reigns from on high. Come in the power of your spirit, enlighten our eyes, help us to see glorious things in your word for the joy of your people so that we might overflow and share this good news to the very ends of the earth, and so that Jesus would get all the glory in our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world 
that prizes safety perhaps above all else. And you don't really realize this until you have a baby and they won't let you go home with that baby until you have a car seat. And you go out and you buy the newest and nicest and latest car seat and you realize it has more technology in it than your car. There's levels to make sure you get it exactly right and expiration dates as if it was a gallon of milk that could potentially go bad. Five-point harnesses and pads and cushions and safety sensors. And you need a master's degree to be able to install it correctly. When I was a kid, we just rolled around in the back of the station wagon. And I think we turned out okay, but we live in a different time. We live in a world in which we prize safety in many ways, above all else. But we also live in a world that prizes painlessness more than anything else as well. Our society believes that pain is bad and we should eliminate it at all costs. I recently read that some time ago, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, so this is the DSM, which is sort of the Bible of psychiatry, it categorizes grief as a disease, in this book. And so it suggests that grief and sadness and depression following the death of a loved one should be treated as a disease and as an illness that's often found in pills and painkillers. So we live in a world that prizes security and safety. We live in a world that prizes pain-free living. And we live in a world that prizes easy fixes. I'm always amazed when I see a pharmaceutical commercial, suppose you have a rash or some migraine headaches and you can take this one pill and then they say, some side effects may include, and then you know how this goes, right? Nausea, upset stomach, joint inflammation, swelling of the throat and face, fever, dizziness, vomiting, diarrhea, seizures, incontinence, temporary blindness, slurred speech, loss of appetite, and potentially spontaneous combustion. But your headache or or your rash will go away. (laughs) So uh, uh, this morning, I'm not trying to minimize the the safety things that we've put in place. It's good that children don't go to the coal mines and work. We we praise God for that. And and it's good that you can go out and get a quadruple bypass and and in a week be better and, and increasingly better. We have amazing medical advances, but we as a culture, as a whole, have made safety and comfort and painlessness gods that we worship in this day. And so when we come to a passage like what we have this morning in Acts, and yes, we're in Acts. Some of you suggested we went through Acts a little too quickly, so we're rewinding and coming back to these three verses. In Acts, when we read Paul say that in every city, Imprisonment and afflictions await me. We we read that through the lens of our culture and we think he's lost his mind. Paul has just lost his mind. Why would Paul keep going if suffering and imprisonments and opposition and hostility were around every corner? Stop traveling is what we would say. Just take a break. It's time for a furlough. Paul, it's time for some home assignment. Lay low until things calm down. If opposition is around every corner, stop turning the corner. That's what our culture would say. Take a break. Take some time for self-care. Treat yourself. Soften your rough edges of your message, and maybe people won't hate you as much. Paul's perspective 
in, in our passage this morning feels so utterly foreign and borderline insane in light of our gods of safety and comfort this morning. And the question I want to ask us this morning is what could possibly explain Paul's motivation? What's going on with Paul? What motivates Paul? What are the convictions that Paul has that he's willingly walking forward, knowing that in every single city he goes into, imprisonment and afflictions await him, and he keeps going? He doesn't stop. He doesn't Say, it's time for a break. I'm frankly tired of being hated and and the riots and the beatings. You know, I'm just going to take a pause. And this is relevant for us this morning because this is the second week of Global Focus. And this morning, we're going to call for some of us, if the Lord is working in your heart, perhaps even right now, that you're going to say, yep, I want to go to the nations. And we're calling you to go to the nations to work among the unreached and unengaged, and the unreached, the unreached and the unengaged are unreached for a reason. They're, they're difficult people to live among, they're difficult places to get to, and there will be suffering involved. And so, this morning, we're, we're going to look at that question. But what I want to do for all of us this morning, whether you're called to stay or to go, I want all of us to think more like Paul. Instead of floating down the lazy river of culture on the inner tube of safety and comfort and and avoiding pain at all costs, I want us to gain Paul-like motivations, Paul-like perspective, Paul-like convictions when it comes to our life. And and what are those convictions? Well, we're going to see three in our passage this morning. But before I get to that, let let me just explain what we're going to do, as is our custom here at Bethlehem in the second week of Global Focus. So at the end of the service, I'm going to call for three groups of people to come to the front and to line the front. And this has been our pattern. We do it this way because we believe that God may be using this sermon or last week's sermon to plant a seed in some of our hearts, whether you're six or 96, and you say, yep, I think that's me. I want to, I want to go to the nation's. I think I'm called to that. I just see this growing sense. And so we're going to call for three groups to come forward. Global partners who are home, we're inviting you to come on up. Any who are presently in the nurture program, this is our missionary preparation program aiming for vocational cross-cultural ministry, calling you to come up. And then the third group is any who sense, it's not that you know, but you're sensing that God is leading you towards vocational global missions, not short-term, but vocational global missions, and you intend to pursue this calling until God directs you otherwise. And and we want to pray for you this morning. So that's what we're going to do at the end of this sermon. But let me just set the stage for our passage and then draw out three crucial convictions that enable global missions. Now, we haven't been Acts in some time. Acts 20 is where Paul had just been in Ephesus, and he's ministered there for about two years. And then there was the big, massive riot with Demetrius, and everyone was yelling out for more than two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And and Paul eventually leaves after two years of ministry there. And, And then he goes to Macedonia, and then he arrives in Miletus, and he calls the elders of Ephesus, and he says, come to me, I want to give you one final message. And that's where we find our passage this morning. Last time we preached this, we did one, verse 1 through 38. Today we're just looking at three verses. And in this speech... 
we see our passage situated. And so look with me in your Bibles at Acts 20, and we're going to read verse 22 and 23. And what we see is Paul's intention, his motivation, and his expectation. So, verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. So that's his intention. He intends to go to Jerusalem from wherever he's at. And then he says he's constrained by the Spirit. This is his motivation. The Spirit has impressed it upon him. He's constrained by the Spirit. And then he says, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So that's his expectation. So we see Paul's intention to go up to Jerusalem, his motivation, the Spirit has impressed it upon him, and then his expectation, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, when it says constrained by the Spirit, we don't know exactly what that means. It could be that he had received a vision or a messenger or some sort of prophecy instructing him to go to Jerusalem. Paul says he doesn't know what will happen even though he's being led and guided by the Holy Spirit. And I think in these first two verses, there's one thing I just want us to note. Paul says, I know exactly where I'm going. Here's my intention. I'm going to Jerusalem. And then yet he says, not knowing what will happen to me there. So there's certainty and uncertainty. And I think it's important to draw this out this morning. Obedience to Jesus with his revealed call in our life doesn't remove the uncertainty that's often there. Knowing that Jesus has called us to do a certain thing doesn't mean that the uncertainty of doing that particular thing has been removed. Faith doesn't mean we won't face opposition. Or following following Jesus doesn't mean a constant upward trajectory. Paul doesn't know what the future holds, and yet why does he continue to walk forward? Because he's certain of a few key things. He's certain that he's supposed to go up to Jerusalem because he's constrained by the Holy Spirit. God has told him, and that's why he can navigate uncertainty. He goes from city to city preaching Jesus. Paul presses on in uncertain situations because he's certain about Jesus' call upon his life. And that's just the first thing I want us to notice this morning. As we talk about going to the nations or going to our neighbors and sharing Christ. We, we all have a call to magnify Jesus in our life. And, and certain things are really certain and really clear. And yet there's always uncertainty along the way. And yet let's not let the uncertainty of those things paralyze us because we have certainty that's founded on the promises of Christ that Dan drew out this morning. I will never what? leave you or forsake you. I am with you until the very end of the age. Now, I want us to look at verse 24, and in verse 24, I'm going to draw out three foundational convictions that we see of Paul that I want all of us to make our foundational convictions for life and ministry. The first one is this, that Paul sees the preciousness of Christ. Paul sees the preciousness of Christ. Look at verse 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. To our modern ears, it sounds like that Paul has a self-esteem problem. 
that he needs to love himself more. He needs to read a few more self-help books, you know, cut himself some slack, think some more positive thoughts. Paul isn't saying that his life is worthless. He isn't saying that he has a death wish or that his life isn't valuable. What he is saying is that his life in comparison to the mission that he's received from Jesus is of little value. See that in verse 24? I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only, if only I can accomplish the mission, finish the course, fulfill the ministry that the Lord Jesus has given me. So for Paul, the mission of Christ is more important than his personal comfort or safety. And I wonder if the same is true of us this morning. Is the mission of Christ, is the glory of Jesus more important than our personal comfort and our personal safety? If this conviction doesn't exist in the people of God, we will not evangelize. We will not go to the nations. We will not send people to the nations because we'll think, well, we're sending that poor little family into a hard place. What, what happens if something happens to them? Do we believe that the mission of Jesus is more important than personal safety or comfort? He doesn't count his life as precious because why? What does he find precious? He finds Jesus as more precious. Is this true of us this morning? And this is what Jesus has always taught, lest we think it's new. Mark 8, 35, Jesus is saying to his disciples, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you try to save yourself, if you try to do everything you can to insulate your life so that you don't experience any discomfort, any pain, any suffering, you, you may be successful, but you're going to lose your life. But if you surrender to Jesus and all that that brings, persecution and suffering and joy and, and the path of obedience and obstacles and opposition and hostility, oh, you will gain everything. That's what Jesus has said. Paul writes the same in the book of Philippians with this same mentality. Philippians 3, 8, what does he say? He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might do what? Gain Christ. Everything else becomes worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. What's another degree? What's a little bit of fame? What's a couple hundred thousand dollars or a big house if you get eternity with Jesus? This conviction is not just for missionaries or pastors or the uniquely godly people, but this ought to be the conviction of all Christians. That we see Jesus as more precious than our own lives of comfort and safety. Jesus is worth more than all that life can offer us. Paul says, suffering awaits him. Imprisonment and affliction. But then he writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, these things are a light, momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That is what? 
beyond all comparison. They do not compare. The preciousness of Jesus ought to be one of those deep foundational convictions that all of us hold this morning. And may that conviction grow this morning. Number two, the second conviction is that he has received, Paul has received a purpose from Christ. He's received purpose from Christ. Look again with me at verse 24. He says, his ambition is to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul's using language like a race. When he says, finish my course and the ministry that I received, it's this language that conveys striving and pursuit and effort. You can't be a part-time or half-hearted Olympic athlete unless it's curling, right? If you want to be an Olympic sprinter or swimmer or skier, it's got to be full devotion, full time. All of your energy goes into this one thing. And Paul's indicating this resolute concentration and desire to complete the task. Why? Because he says it's been given to him directly from Jesus. He says, I received it from the Lord Jesus. Now, what's Paul referring to? Where do we see in the scriptures that Paul received a purpose or a commission from Jesus? I think we can look in at least two places. First, you can go to Acts 9. So turn there with me. Acts 9, I want you to see this. And we have to draw some inferences out from this, but this is Jesus speaking to Ananias. So he's not speaking to Paul. This is Jesus speaking to Ananias. Jesus has just confronted Paul on the Damascus Road. He's blind, he's waiting, and Jesus shows up, goes to Ananias and says, go and I want you to lay hands on Paul. And Ananias is like, he's a murderer. I'm not going. And and Jesus says, no, 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 go. And this is what he says. Acts 9, verse 15 and 16. He says, go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this is the calling that Paul received. And my guess is when Ananias goes, lays hands on Paul, he gets his eyesight back and he says, why are you here? And I says, well, you wouldn't believe this, but Jesus showed up to me and this is what he said. And he tells Paul exactly these words, that you are a chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and that he's going to suffer for the sake of Jesus. The second place we could look, you can turn all the way to Acts 26. So near the end, Acts 26, verses 17 and 18. Paul, throughout Acts, tells of his conversion story at least three different times. And in Acts 26, he says that he heard a voice, the voice of Jesus, saying this. Acts 26, verse 17. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Jesus had told Paul directly that this is his mission and calling. So therefore, Paul can face uncertainty because he has received a commission, a purpose 
from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's unmistakable and undeniable, and it serves as the foundational conviction for why Paul can do what he continues to do. He says, imprisonment, afflictions, but I have a mission that Jesus has given to me, so we keep going. Now, I want to say a word just on calling here for a moment, because very often in our kind of spiritual Christian circles, the word calling can have all this loaded weight and baggage, and I just want to help us understand it really quickly. For Paul, it was a clear encounter with the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, and and he was confronted, and it was unmistakable, undeniable, and he was called to be an apostle, uh, an evangelist, a missionary, And that's often not true of us. So what do we mean when we say the word calling? At one level, we are all called by God when he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When we were saved, God called each and every single one of us so that we have a purpose in him to magnify Jesus with our life. But very often in kind of our churches, we use calling as sort of a subjective call to ministry or missions. And I think this subjective call, like a growing sense that God is maybe moving me to go do something specific, to give my life specifically for that purpose, uh, and it requires five different things being taken into account. The first is spiritual gifts. God has given each and every single believer spiritual gifts to be used for the disposal of the church. Second, there's practical gifts. You might have a medical background or Bible translation expertise and training or business experience. And so God may be moving you to serve the nations with those practical gifts. Then there's this deep desire that continues to grow, that, that you look at kind of the task and you say, uh, you know, there's other things I could do, but, but that's the one thing I want to do. There's this growing desire. Number four, that there's the confirmation of your local church, which is why we're calling for people to come up to the front at the end of the service. We want to know who those people are because your your small group and the elders and the church as a whole are going to speak into your life to confirm what you might be feeling. And, And there might be cases where we say, you should wait. You should work on your marriage. You might want to pause for a season. It may not be for you. And then the fifth is a willingness even after you count the costs. As you look at what's involved, the things you might give up, and you say, but I want to do that. I want to go. And so when we use the word calling or sensing God's call upon your life, we're taking into view these five things. And this morning, if you're sensing number three, right, this deep growing sense of, I want to go, there's more steps to be taken, but we want to invite you forward at the end of the service to consider so that we might pray with you and plan with you and, and confirm those things as you head towards the nations. The third conviction, the third conviction that Paul has is that he's been given a passion to preach Jesus. He's been given a passion to preach Jesus. Look at the last part of verse 24. He says, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's primary task is to be a witness of Jesus. That's why throughout Acts, his conversion story is recorded three different times because he says, This is what happened. Look at what happened to my life. And And he uses the phrase, the gospel of the grace 
of God. This is a unique phrase. It doesn't show up anywhere else in Paul's writings. What does it mean to testify to the gospel of the grace of God? I think it means this. And Paul's a perfect example of this. Not only was he not seeking after Jesus, not only was he not sitting there reading his Bible, seeing if these things confirmed Christ, he was running a hundred miles an hour in the opposite direction, persecuting Christ's disciples, complicit in the murder and martyrdom of the very first martyr, Stephen. So Paul is attacking Jesus' church, his disciples, Jesus himself. And God, in his mercy, reaches down and plucks him out, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so Paul did nothing to earn his salvation. And so when he says the gospel of the grace of God, I think it's referring to the truth that God alone is the one who saves, who brings about salvation and conversion and redemption and reconciliation and our election and new birth and justification. No human effort does it. God alone does it by his grace. And this is amazing. This should be stunning. Paul says, I was running as far and as fast away from God as I could, and God, in his mercy, plucked me out and saved me. I did nothing to earn this salvation. And that's the message that he's so eager to proclaim. You don't have to do anything to deserve what is undeserved. You don't earn what you cannot earn. This is the free gift of God. Let me just read three passages, three verses for us that highlight this. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's all by grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. It's a gift. No one earns it. Or 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. It is all by the grace of God. Paul's conviction is that he is to preach Christ because he has this all-consuming passion to proclaim that God gives his grace as a gift and all those who come, who are undeserving, who are weak and imperfect, can find grace. And this is so important for us as a church to get right. We don't invite people, clean yourself up, put on your nicest clothes and come to church and hopefully you'll fit in. We, We say to everyone, You don't have to clean yourself up. You can never make yourself clean enough. You don't have to put on your nice clothes. You don't need to look the part. You don't need to fake it until you make it. We are a people who have all received grace upon grace because we were broken and destitute and fragile and weak. And God in his grace saved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. In the In a world that worships the gods of safety and comfort and painlessness, Jesus is beckoning us to true and lasting eternal safety 
by being saved by God alone, by his grace alone, through faith alone. For some here this morning, Jesus is calling you not to the mission field, but to surrender to his loving, persistent call. Stop trying to earn salvation. Stop trying to climb the ladder. Stop thinking you can just do enough where God will be pleased with you because it's impossible. Only by surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving of his unmerited grace and saying, Lord, I can do nothing to deserve it, but I'm trusting in Jesus. And Jesus says, if I confess with my mouth, you're faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me and to make me righteous. Paul has three foundational convictions that enable him to willingly anticipate imprisonment and affliction. He sees the preciousness of Christ. He's received purpose and a calling from Christ, and he's been given a passion to preach Jesus. I think this can all be summarized in this phrase. Suffering awaits, but Jesus is worth it. Suffering awaits. Suffering awaits Paul. Suffering awaits every single believer. But oh, Jesus is worth it. Paul's ambition is that Christ would be exalted regardless of what happens to him. And this is the conviction I want us to have in greater measure today. John Stott once wrote, he said, the highest of missionary motive is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Only one imperialism is Christian, and that is concern for his imperial majesty, Jesus Christ, and for the glory of his empire. I want us to be overcome with a passion and a zeal and an ambition for Christ and his glory. Whether we stay or whether we go, let that characterize our life this morning, brothers and sisters. The second week of Global Focus is is really a big moment that we do every year. For some of you, it will begin the many-year journey of going to the nations. And, And we don't take that lightly. But we will not motivate missions and aspiring missionaries with the promise of fame. We will not motivate missions with the promise that you're, you are or you will be a more spiritual Christian than others. We will not motivate you to missions by telling you that it's going to be easy, because it won't, or exciting, and perhaps it will, or with the promise of martyrdom. More than likely, it will be full of trials and hardships and challenges and monotony, difficult work and years of language learning. Suffering awaits. And I want to make it as difficult as possible because we don't want just sort of, well, that was so encouraging. Here's the spiritual high. I want to go to the nations only to flame out later. We want to stack the deck against it because what God is doing in your heart, only he can do. So for most missionaries, it does not mean you'll go out in a blaze of glory. It will be slow and difficult work. You'll have arguments with teammates over stupid stuff. 
Things won't go as planned. Electricity and internet will be perpetually unstable. You'll struggle for years learning the language, always feeling like an outsider. Converts may take years or even decades, or maybe you'll just plant seeds and till the soil. You'll miss out on a dozen of celebrations with family, Christmas and birthdays and Easter. You may miss out on those final years with your parents before they pass. Your children may have an abnormal childhood that they don't appreciate. You may watch your friends move on to prestigious careers and buy big houses and take lavish vacations and wonder if you've missed the boat. But I want us to hear this. We have been created for so much more than living 70 or 80 or 90 years of quiet desperation. We were not created to scroll Facebook and Twitter and Instagram all day long. We were not created to complain and grumble about the neighbors and about the noise and about the leaves and about the weather. We were not created to try to make the most money or buy the most toys or climb the highest on the corporate ladder or to stock away the biggest retirement funds. We were not created by God to stare at our navels, wondering about how other people thought of us. We were not created to worry about tomorrow, worry about next year, worry about our economy, worry about the supply chain, worry about the future, and to worry about our safety. Instead, we have been created to behold the glory and the majesty and the preciousness of Jesus. That's why we were created this morning, brothers and sisters. There's nothing greater than beholding the gospel of the grace of God, that in his mercy, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. There's no greater beauty than being saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We did nothing to earn the lavish gifts that he pours upon us. There's nothing more marvelous than to ponder and to think that our sins have been wiped away, forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, there's nothing more amazing than being called a son or daughter of the most high God. That's your identity more than anything else this morning. There's no greater experience than being filled with the joy of the Lord. There's nothing more astonishing that Jesus, when you get to heaven, he will say, that's my friend in whom I died for. There's nothing more staggering than experiencing the power and the presence of God through his indwelling Holy Spirit. There's nothing more liberating, knowing that if we die, we gain forever. There is nothing more magnificent than living a life that is free. Right now, we are free, washed clean, free of condemnation, free of guilt, and free of shame. There's nothing more wondrous than knowing that we have gone from enemies who hated God, who deserved his wrath, and we've been rescued by his grace through nothing that we did to receive eternal life and grace and glory. Jesus is worth it, is he not? And we have this glorious privilege of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Suffering awaits all of us, but Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus with your everything is worth it. Leaving behind everything else to become a Christian Maybe you'll get disowned by family. Maybe you're watching online from a Muslim country and it means you're going to get kicked out of your family. You might be persecuted. And Jesus says you'll gain 
mothers and fathers and children and a family of God a hundredfold by following Jesus. And for some of us, maybe you're being called to go to the nations and you think, but my parents, they they need someone to care for them. Or my children, what kind of childhood would I give them going to that place? And Jesus says, go. Oh, it's going to be so worth it. Jesus and his glory beckons us there. And if we stay, oh, that we would live with this same zeal and passion to see the glory of Christ greatly exalted. Suffering, hardship, and trials await all of us because it comes in the path of obedience. But Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would be preparing our hearts so that we would indeed have these deep convictions to see the glory of Christ exalted in life and in death and in every moment. We want to magnify Jesus with everything, whether we're goers or senders, and oh, guard us from being the disobedient. So help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.